Well, good morning. If we turn your Bible to John chapter 7, verse 53, we'll be in chapter 8 primarily today. Thank you, Josh, for leading us, uh, choir, orchestra. We have a lot of people out today. Adam's out. Uh, Greg is sick. Uh, we have people on disaster relief trips, and we have our uh, Carpenters for Christ are at a dedication, and so we're not going to have notes today, but hopefully I'll be able to to speak clearly enough that you can then follow along, but it reminds us of, of how important uh, what Greg and his team does. We're very grateful for them. They do it excellently, so we miss them when, when, when they're not available, but it's great to be here. We're in a very important passage, and let's ask the Lord to bless it. Before we get into our prayer, if we could look at, really at the heart of this passage, John chapter 8, in verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, this woman that had been brought to him, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Let's pray. Father, we come to one of the most cherished passages in the history of the church. We pray that your preacher today would preach this passage in the manner in which it was intended when it was inspired. And we pray that it would encourage us all and meet us where we are at our point of need by the grace of our Lord Jesus. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 36 years ago today, on October the 9th, 1986, what would become the most successful Broadway play in history premiered in London. I got to see this play on January the 1st, 1991, Phantom of the Opera. And in this play, uh, the, the Phantom lives in the bowels of the Paris Opera House. And, and this man, the Phantom, uh, is a, a musical genius. And yet, he is kind of sequestered. He is shunned by society because of a, a facial, a severe facial deformity that I believe represents really the deformity of, of his soul and his heart. And, and so he is destined to live alone. And yet he longs for love. And he has hope for it in his protege. Uh, the rising star of the, of the opera house, Christine Dye. He had mentored her. Uh, he had trained her voice. And he, he had this infatuation for her. He, he had this kind of bizarre love for her. But as the play unfolds, he becomes increasingly consumed with demanding love from her to the point of kidnapping her twice in, in jealous rage and in hopes of securing uh, marriage with her. Now, contrast that with our great bridegroom, 
the Lord Jesus Christ, who as the Song of Solomon foresees him, is altogether lovely. Of course, he is altogether lovely in in his disposition to sinners. But unlike the phantom, our Lord Jesus was anything but lonely or needy. Though as a man he was shunned like the phantom, he had perfect and eternal communion with his heavenly Father. And so unlike the phantom, Jesus' motivation was birthed not out of need for love, but motivated by a desire to share the love of the Godhead with his bride. And the bride that he would secure, unlike Christine Dye, who was beautiful, isn't attractive at all in the spiritual sense. But instead of demanding love from his bride, he compels it. He compels it by his mercy and by his truth. Of course, with the kind of Messiah that our Lord Jesus Christ is, uh, he is not altogether lovely to the self-righteous. In fact, uh, we've seen that uh, his mission contradicts the self-salvation project of the self-righteous. We have seen that in the Gospel of John, and we're going to see it today in one of the most beloved, cherished passages in all the Holy Scriptures. Now, maybe in your Bible, it's very likely in your Bible, unless you're holding a King James Version, which is a wonderful translation, In your Bible, you see that this passage is bracketed off. Or perhaps you have a footnote for your passage. And and the reason for this is that the majority of New Testament scholars do not believe that it was included in the original autographs of the Gospel of John. But it was added later. For example, uh, the... New Testament scholar D.A. Carson, who is a friend to all evangelicals, he has served us so well. He says this in his commentary on John, despite the best efforts to prove that this narrative was originally part of of John's gospel, the evidence is against them, and modern English versions are right to rule it off from the rest of the text. And here's the argument. In the earliest Greek manuscripts, remember, we don't have the original autographs. We have the manuscripts. Uh, in the earliest Greek manuscripts, this passage is not included. Um, in fact, there are no tra- uh, manuscripts before the 5th century A.D. that includes this passage. A second reason, all the earliest church fathers omit this text when commenting, when expounding on the Gospel of John. In fact, they, they skip from John 7, 52, all the way to John 8, verse 11, all the ancient fathers. In fact, in the Eastern church, no pastor or or church father cites this passage until the 10th century AD. And then when the story starts to appear in manuscripts, it's found in several different places in John. In fact, it's found in one manuscript on the Gospel of Luke. But with that said, and I had to 
expound on that because you see it there in your passage, and I have that responsibility uh, as your pastor to, to speak to that. Despite all that, D.A. Carson and most New Testament scholars believe the story happened. They believe that it is an authentic story and that it was rightly circulated and it was later put in to the Gospel of John. Bruce Metzger, who was one of the world-leading New Testament scholars until he died in 2002, says this, the account has all the earmarks of historical veracity, trustworthiness. D.A. Carson, again, the great scholar, there is little reason for doubting that the event occurred. In fact, the story is found as early as 375 AD. And Eusebius, who was the first church historian, uh, he tells of the early church father Papias, who died just after 100 AD, who said he had met a woman who had been accused of these very sins in the presence of Jesus. And so, I am firmly convinced that with the overwhelming consensus of New Testament scholars that even though this may not have been included in the original writing of the Gospel of John in this particular place, I join the overwhelming consensus of scholars in saying that it is an authentic, it is an authentic passage and it belongs in the New Testament. It is the Word of God. That's where I am. I believe this account is nothing less the inspired, infallible Word of God for His people in the 21st century. And I believe actually the text fits perfectly right here. Why? Because it displays the same kind of antagonism towards Jesus that we have seen in all the chapters leading up to this in the Gospel of John. And this antagonism arose because of the Jewish leaders' faulty view of the law of God. In fact, that's what we see at the very beginning. Well, we can't see it on our overhead today. But our first point is this, the misapplication of the law, colon, a microscope for others. That's how it's often misapplied. Uh, we use the law as a microscope for others. And we see that here. Notice with me at the end of chapter 7, verse 53. They went each to his own house. So the previous passage that we looked at last week is the context there. You have these spiritual leaders who were self-righteous. All of these various expressions of unbelief. Uh, we saw uh, that last week. They went each to his own house after the conversation. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. And all the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. Now the last time we saw that the officers who had been sent to arrest Jesus had come back empty-handed. In chapter 7, 
Verse 46, the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. They couldn't arrest him. They were arrested themselves by the authority of his word. And so they came back empty-handed. And so it seems now the, the spiritual leaders, the scribes and the, the Pharisees, decide there's really no need to have him arrested. Uh, what we'll do is discredit him instead. That will have the same kind of effect. In fact, it will be more effective than having him arrested because he has such a following and it could cause real chaos around us. And so to do this, they bring a woman caught in the act of adultery. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees are not the same people. There were scribes who were Pharisees, and there were Pharisees who were scribes, but not all scribes were Pharisees, and, and not all Pharisees were scribes. The scribes were the theologians. Uh, they, they, it was their vocation. They did it for a living. In fact, they were, in some places in the gospel, known as the, the, the lawyers because they were experts in the law of God. The Pharisees were lay people. So again, some lay people had the vocation of a scribe, but not all of them. The Pharisees were a, a, a group that purposed to come together to bring reformation to the Jews. They had been formed in the period of time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We know that there's about a 400-year period of time uh, between the Old Testament and the New Testament known as the intertestamental period. And, and so the Jews... Had, had begun to drift from the law of God during that time as they had in previous times in their history. And so this group formed to bring about reformation uh, to the Jewish people, the separated ones. That's what the word Pharisee means, the separated ones. And so the separated ones and the scribes who are the the, the Jewish theologians, these are the experts in the law. They could parse the law well. In fact, most of them would have had perhaps even uh, the, the law memorized, at least Genesis to Deuteronomy. But they were in the dark, with that said, to the central purpose of the law. The central purpose of the law was never intended to serve as a ladder to climb to earn merit with God. The central purpose of the law was to show us our sin and to drive us to the Savior, the only one who could actually keep the law. So instead, they used the law as a platform to hypocritically parade their merits and to demean everyone around them who sinned differently than them. Again, what I said, sin differently than them. They sinned themselves. They just didn't sin the way others sinned. They sinned differently. And their hypocrisy is also seen in this passage in the fact that only a woman is brought forward. Now, there's no such thing as adultery with only one party, right? But there she is. And there is no man. Leviticus 20, verse 10 says, If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, 
with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to, uh, to death. That was the stipulations of the Mosaic law. And here they only have the woman. Where's the man? You, we can speculate, but it's very possible that he's one of the good old boys. They didn't want to get the man in trouble, but they're going to use the woman to fulfill their purposes. And this is the kind of abuse, the kind of spiritual abuse that has often embittered women to male spiritual leadership. Lord, help us. And in verse 6, it's, and we're going to see this, the text makes explicit uh, what their motives were. And it had nothing to do with the law. They were out to trip Jesus. It's apparent it wasn't the law at all that they were concerned with. They were out to bring down Jesus. Well, notice in verse 4. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught. So if she was caught, that meant there was someone else there with her. This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This, notice, they said to test him. They said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Now, let's be clear. Adultery is a devastating sin. It's devastating to, the, to those who, who commit adultery. It's also devastating to their families. It's devastating to their communities. It has as much collateral damage that comes with it as any other sin. Uh, Proverbs 6, in the context of a warning about adultery, says this about it. Chapter 6, verse 27. Can a man carry fire to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor and his disgrace will not be wiped away. Those are warnings from the book of Proverbs, the book of wisdom. But with that said, this woman's transgressions aren't what they're really concerned about. They're not concerned about the law. Uh, they are concerned about using her, even using the law, to get at Jesus. Now, to understand what's going on here, Israel at that time was under the tyranny of Rome. Rome had occupied Israel, and, and the Romans allowed significant self-rule in the nations that they conquered. Even though Israel was not happy about it at all, they did allow significant self-rule. There was one area the Romans did not allow the nations they conquer to demonstrate self-rule. They did not have freedom to execute capital punishment. They did not have freedom in capital crimes. Uh, 
That was the Romans' responsibility. It was implemented, the death penalty was implemented through the Roman judicial system. And that's why Jesus, by the way, would be later sentenced, not by Caiaphas, the high priest, but he would be sentenced by Pontius Pilate. With this background in mind, these scribes and these Pharisees laid a trap for Jesus. If Jesus were to say, you need to stone this woman, they would have taken that to the Roman authorities and said, this Jewish man is seeking to execute capital punishment apart from the Roman judicial system. But if Jesus were to say, no, leave her alone, they would have taken it to the Jewish Sanhedrin and said, this man is undermining the Jewish law. Their mistreatment of Jesus has been seen from, the, from John chapter 1 on, hasn't it? We've seen it. And now it's, it's snowballing. I want you to think about this, lest this seems out there to us. There is a very important principle here that we need to think about. After mistreating someone, whether it be uh, you are, you're rude to them, you're mean to them, uh, you dismiss them to their face, or you gossip about them, or you slander them behind their back, or spread rumors, after you mistreat someone, watch what happens on the inside. We, we go into fifth gear trying to find more and more faults in that person. That, that, that's the natural state. Why is that? Because we're trying to change the subject in our consciences from guilty to justified. All right? So it snowballs. And these religious leaders are guilty of this with Jesus. And they appear to have Jesus in a pickle. They appear to have him in a no-win situation. How will he respond? That brings us to the second part of this passage. We've seen the wrong application of the law. And in the wrong application of the law, we use it as a as a microscope, all right, to judge others. The right application of the law, we use it as a mirror for the self. Well, notice in the second part of verse six, the brilliant Lord Jesus, they've sought to test him with that question or with that uh, bringing that woman forward. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger, on the ground. Verse 7, as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. What did he write? We've speculated for 2,000 years. The text doesn't tell us.
But let me give you some thoughts. There's another time the Lord wrote with a human finger in Daniel chapter 5 after Belshazzar had, had committed pure apostasy against God and his people. And in Daniel chapter 5, after that human hand appeared, writing on the wall of Belshazzar's castle, or his palace, Daniel was brought to translate what had been written. And here's what was written on that wall. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Some have speculated that's what he wrote in the ground. You yourselves have been found in the balances and found wanting. Or maybe, some have speculated, he wrote Jeremiah 17, verse 13. That's a pretty remarkable passage because in that passage, the prophet Jeremiah writes, O Lord, the hope of all Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. Isn't that interesting? All who forsake you, turn away from you, shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Now John tells us that Jesus had just, just previously to this, invited people to drink of him, the fountain of living water. And so maybe he wrote Jeremiah 17, verse 13, R. Maybe he wrote the Ten Commandments. You know, there is something, there's not something, there is inherently something authoritative about the Ten Commandments. All you have to do is read the Ten Commandments. And it has an effect on your affections, on your mind, on your will. But in the Ten Commandments, we read in Exodus 31 that the first time they were given, the Lord wrote them. And here's what it says in Exodus 31, 18. He gave to Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And so we see three places in the Old Testament where it talks about God writing something. And all of those places, it's speaking about the reality that we are, we are lawbreakers. And we are in need of a Messiah and so, whatever he wrote, and maybe we'll find out in glory, whatever he wrote, it's it certainly connected with the final words that we see there in verse 7 that he gives them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw, throw a stone at her. The reason I say that is because prior to those words, he writes on the ground, and then right after those words, he writes on the ground. And so, it's connected to those final words. In fact, it's very possible he wrote of these particular men's secret sins. Very possible. He would have had privilege to know. He knew human hearts in his divine nature. Uh, and so, one man may have been there and he wrote pervert. Another man, adulterous, or another man, a murderer, whatever it may be. He very possibly wrote of their particular sins. But what does it mean when he said, cast the first stone? Well, again, under the law, 
Deuteronomy 17 verse 7 says, the hands of the witnesses, those who, who witness a crime, a capital crime, shall be first against him to put him to death. In other words, if you witnessed a capital crime and that person was prosecuted, there was legitimate evidence to prosecute the person and indict him, then the witness himself or herself had to take part in the execution. So maybe Jesus writes in the ground to show, and I, I tend to lean this way strongly, actually, to show that he knew of the same sins in their lives that were worthy of death, just like this woman. Uh, John Maxwell tells a story about a grandfather who came and visited his grandchildren. And so one day he decided to take a, a nap uh, in, in their living room and they decide to play a practical joke on their grandfather. And so they, they go and they put Limburger cheese in his mustache. Now, if you've ever smelled Limburger cheese, you know it's not the best smelling cheese. But they put it in his mustache and he, he awakens from his nap and in about a minute, he says, it smells awful uh, in this living room. In fact, it stinks. So he walked into the kitchen, and he said, it, it stinks in here too. And so he decided to go outside to get some fresh air, and all of a sudden, he determined the whole world stinks. The self-righteous can sniff out the sins and the shortcomings of others all around them. And, and they think that everyone else stinks while all the while the smell might just be on them as well. But with that said, when Jesus said, Ye without sin cast the first stone. He is not minimizing her sin. Her sin was real. And so Jesus is not and does not compromise law, God's law here. He is always going to side with Moses. And it slays them. Notice in verse 9. But when they heard it, when they heard what... Him say, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. They went away. One by one. Maybe after having read what he wrote in the dirt as well. Beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So their guilt and their shame has been exposed, maybe for the first time in their lives. But instead of them repenting, and that's what we should do when we're confronted with our sin, they went away. Cecil B. DeMille, uh, in, and I'm sure many of you have seen this movie, The King of Kings. He has this, this account in that movie. And in this particular scene, Jesus is 
leaning over, riding in the dirt, and he says these words, those of you without sin cast the first stone, and all of a sudden you hear a stone drop, and then you hear another stone drop, and then you hear another stone drop, and they walk away. And that remarkable response by these spiritual leaders was a silent acknowledgement that really at the end of the day, they were no better than this adulterous woman. Uh, Now, this does not mean that justice should ever be compromised. Imagine uh, going uh, into a law court and and a a judge uh, looking at your crime saying, well, I'm, I'm just in a good mood. I'm going to let you off. Well, that will make you happy, but the whole uh, justice system has been compromised. Justice should never be compromised. But what Jesus is doing here, he's exposing hypocrisy. By the way, if you ask the average person why they don't go to church, if they've been raised in the church, the number one reason, look at all of the surveys, is hypocrisy. And I say to those people, Jesus hates hypocrisy worse than you did. He went after it all the time. And remember, John is writing so that you and I may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And that by believing that he is the Son of God, we would have life in his name. And nothing gets in the way of belief, saving faith more than self-righteousness and hypocrisy. Well, notice in verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? That was a a very uh, gracious and courteous way to speak. He's not being rude to her. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. Now, this is the first time anyone has even addressed the woman in the passage. And such a a response uh, reflects Jesus' compassion for sinners. The fact that you're sitting here today is not because you're better than those who aren't. It's because you've experienced the sovereign compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what this woman's experiencing in HD. And it reinforces A passage that takes us all the way back to chapter 1, verse 17. It says, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. Now, the law is gracious itself. It gives us the will of God. That's a grace thing. But the the law was intended to show us our need for the grace and truth that comes through Jesus Christ. And note her response. I love her response. Her response is, no one Lord. No one, Lord. Uh, Given what Jesus says next to her, I believe this is her confession and her conversion. She She is being converted before our very eyes. She confesses Jesus as Lord. Now, clearly she was a Jewish woman because the Romans were not under or subject to the Mosaic law. So this was a Jewish woman, and she knew her Bible, what the Jewish people call the Tanakh. We call the Old Testament. Don't call it the Old Testament to a Jewish person. That's very offensive. To them, it's the Tanakh. 
she would have known her Tanakh. She would have known about a coming Messiah. But prior to this engagement with Jesus, like all of us, she believed that her sin, her particular sin, was the path to life. In this particular case, adultery. She believed that that would satisfy her spiritual thirst. But now she recognizes she was wrong. What won her? It wasn't the demanding love of the phantom. It was the compassion and the mercy of the Savior. Well, notice in the second part of verse 11. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Now, the, the tension here is how justice and mercy can be expressed without compromising each other. The quite, and the answer to that gets us at the heart of the gospel. Jesus loved God's law. He came to fulfill it. Do you know that our salvation is not, is not simply because of the cross. It's because of Jesus' obedience to the law. He came to fulfill the law because you and I don't. In fact, there's never been a day in your life where you fulfilled the law or obeyed the law perfectly. And so Jesus loved the law. He would never compromise it. But he is showing a different way of fulfilling it by not condemning the woman. But yet, justice would not be compromised either. Because in six months, Jesus was going to take her condemnation. That's why she could, he could say to her, neither do I condemn you. It would cost him dearly to say these words. These aren't flippant words. Neither do I condemn you. It would cost him the cross. And on the cross, he would exhaust the law's penalty for breaking the law. He would exhaust it by taking the judgment that this woman deserved. By taking the judgment that you and I deserve daily. We need to always keep in mind, whereas sin is an internal moral problem for all of us. Every day. No exception. Sin is, a, is an internal moral problem. Forgiveness is an intrinsic moral problem for God. Why do I say that? Because God, in order to forgive us, cannot deny himself as holy and as righteous. He cannot arbitrarily forgive like some bad judge without full satisfaction of his moral character. And Jesus, six months out from the cross, but anticipating his hour, and John describes it as the hour, he took away her condemnation on the basis of his future death. That's why he was able to say that. He was able to forgive her on the basis of his future death. And she had confessed him as Lord. But it's not the only thing he said to her. Let's close here. The last line of this passage, so important. Go, and from now on, sin 
no more. This always follows forgiveness. Repentance. Repentance. One of the, repentance isn't what saves us. It's the fruit. It is the, it's the apple on the apple tree. It, it's the evidence that we have been saved. That we have been born again. That we are in Christ. If Jesus through his death, think about this. If Jesus, through his death, moved our judgment day from the future to the past, why would we even think it is right and good and beneficial to continue to live in ways worthy of judgment? He has moved our judgment day from the future to the past because judgment comes to us all. But he took the judgment as our substitute. And that's why he tells this woman, go and sin no more. It's what he tells us. It's what he tells you. Here's the question. Has Jesus taken away your condemnation? If you're a believer, he has. No matter what you've done or doing, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Has Jesus taken away your condemnation? Jesus says to you, go and sin no more. Did he die on the cross for your sexual immorality? Go and sin no more. Did he die on the cross for your drunkenness and your enslavement to the world? Go and sin no more. Did he die on the cross for your slander and your gossip and your judgments on others? Go and sin no more. Take up your cross for him as he took up the cross for you. That's what he's saying to this woman. And for those of you who are not yet Christians, and I say not yet because I believe there's a reason you're here. I don't believe it's an accident. I don't believe it's luck. I believe it's divine providence. For those of you who are not yet Christians, there are two types of sinners in this text. There's the, unright, there's the uh, self-righteous sinner. The self-righteous sinner who does not believe he or she needs a Savior. And the cross says you do. The cross says you do. You need a Savior. Your self-righteousness will not stand before a holy God. There's also another type of sinner in this text. It's the type of sinner that cannot believe, can't even envision that God could forgive them. For what they've done. And the cross says he will. He died for our sins. He took the judgment for our sins. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. The cross says he will. Think about this. Here's a woman who broke the most sacred trust. And Jesus took away her condemnation. That is a good word for us all. And so as Josh comes forward uh, uh, and the musicians, I recognize that most of you are believers. What is this passage intended to do for the believer? To rejoice your hearts. That's one of the purposes of Scripture, to rejoice your hearts. We get dull, don't we? We get dull in our walk. 
Um, we, we get over Christmas presents by the first week of January, don't we? That's just, that's who we are. We, we get over grace. We get over grace. This passage reminds us of the grace that was poured out on you. For him to say to you, I do not condemn you, took an infinite price. And it should rejoice our hearts. It should awaken us back to the love of God in Jesus Christ. But this also is a passage for those of you who are not yet believers. Whatever your sin is, self-righteousness or sexual morality or whatever, fill in the blank. The cross says he will forgive you if you will turn and trust in him. So won't you come as we stand and as we sing. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.